Welcome to the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so you can become who you were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith. And if you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share this podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. Today, we have Stefanos Safandos. Stefanos is a trained educator and relationship expert with a background in behavioral science. He is passionate about leading people closer to their highest potential. He helps men and women escape negative patterns and cultivate a positive sense of self as well as restructuring and reframing their relationships with themselves and their loved ones. Stefanos, welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, this is way too important to put at the end of the episode. I want to let you know that Love Amplified presents Reconnect, help heal your inner child and reclaim your joy, peace, and purpose. This is being put on by Christine Hassler, and you can connect with her at christinehassler.com backslash reconnect. Stefanos, welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for sharing your time with us and your knowledge and experience. And my experience of you, if you don't mind me sharing real quick, is years ago, I was really going through it. I was in that place where I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the words to really put things together as to what I was experiencing, what I was going through. Ultimately, I found the holistic psychologist and I fell into your work as well. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's the shadow. I'm going through the dark night of the soul. And what really started it for me was I was a police officer. And so I'm witnessing all of these things and being introduced to all these different experiences of the human condition and being exposed to these things. And I'm starting to recognize I've had that experience. I know what that looks like. I've had that in my personal life, but yet we're calling that trauma. So if that's trauma, I must have some sort of trauma or experience or something that's going on inside of me that's causing all of these other things and impacting me in all these different areas of my life. And so when I first found your stuff, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? It's because I'm very closed off at this point and I'm being introduced to this stuff and I'm hearing all these things from you. And I'm just like masculine and feminine dynamics. That's ridiculous. I don't get any part of this. It makes no sense to me. And so there was this barrier and wall of rejection that was just, <laughs> I couldn't watch it. And over time, I started to really dive into it and I got curious and I stepped back, I zoomed out and it wasn't something that was intentional. It was just like this natural thing that was occurring. I, I didn't seek to do any of this. And I started taking in a lot of the stuff that you were saying. And then you dive into YouTube and other people's social media and you find Wayne Dyer and Joe Dispenza and you start getting into all the work and trying to figure these things out. So all that to be said, I'm not upset with you. I'm very happy that you exist, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's just so awesome to have all of this stuff come full, full circle. Because several years ago, extremely closed off, wanted nothing to do with this, didn't understand it. You dive into shadow work, doing the work, spirituality, figuring things out, gaining all the knowledge and experience on your own, looking for sources and coaches and people to help guide you along this process. And I think it's really indicative of the male experience, especially in modern times, where so many men are so closed off to all of these new and different ways of thinking that really aren't new and different. They've always existed. They've always been around us. It's always been right in front of you. Wayne Dyer's books have been around forever, but I didn't discover them until 2020. And so I think a lot of people are in the space now where more and more of us are talking about this and the importance of diving into this type of knowledge. And you're just one of those people that has brought it out in so many of us. And I can't thank you enough for that. 
Oh, thanks, man. I, I really appreciate that and your kindness. And it's it's really interesting to hear a little bit more about your personal journey as well and, and your transformation and how you started making the shift from you know being closed per se to being open. For sure. You do a lot of coaching. You're a coach, thought leader, teacher, spiritual healer. I don't know what other names you would assign to yourself at this point. What brought you to going into that? Because you had to have had a life prior to all of this. So what did that look like? And what was the transition into doing all of these things? Interestingly enough, I've been doing this for 24 years. In, in various depictions, I started when I was 18 years old, in, in more pr predominantly in the physical health and wellness space, but definitely mental, really helping people with their mental aptitude and their mindset when it comes to physical health and wellness. And just from a very early age, I was just fascinated with human performance and human potential, largely because, and I share this often, Dr. John Martini says our greatest voids often become our greatest values. And so I really cherished and found, um, man, just so important connection and intimacy and trust and safety in relationships and being able to have people you can really rely on and really count on and to be able to bring your full self to a relationship so people can count on you. So there's reciprocity there as well. And so that really fascinated me from a very young age in a very deep way. And it, it really, it, it drives, if you like, it fuels, it inspires, it pulls me towards the work that I do in the world. And the work that I do in the world, the way I, I see it and consider it is all of us experience, or at least the vast majority of us experience some really difficult things in life. You, you could say and argue some more than others. Trauma is really less about the actual experience and more about how our nervous systems and the entire integrated self processes and interprets the experience so from that perspective it can be very difficult to compare trauma and we really shouldn't and what i've done is with my own trauma a lot of violence a lot of physical abuse really dysfunctional household sometimes living in poverty sometimes not it's just really uncertainty and volatility i've really reflected deeply on that and i've worked with that and, and i've gone to the places where that trauma lives within me many times and in very profound ways and what I really support people with now is closing those trauma loops so that they, they don't get stuck in their lives like I was really stuck in my life. And I don't mean to project my experiences onto everyone. That's not what I'm here to do. And that's not what I'm, I'm attempting to do in any capacity. Just recognizing that as humans, we can we have a capacity to hold on to trauma. And that trauma then impacts and influences our lives in, in unhealthy ways. It, it restricts us, it constricts us, it causes health issues, it causes stress, it, it has us living in, in more cortisol and adrenaline, more in a survival mode, more hypervigilant. And really, I just feel like a big part of my path is to support people, is to provide a very safe and stable space for them to explore their own selves with some tools and techniques and, and ways through, like journey arcs through that, to free them of the past that they're, that their body is holding on to, right? Because it's familiar. And I, I guess, again, that comes from my own experiences with trauma and in my body and my own self-image and self-worth and all of the my accumulated experiences throughout my life. And I want people to know and really take away from everything that you just said that trauma is not a competition. And we're in a place now in 2024 where we're talking about it. We're at least having the conversation and we're allowing ourselves to dive into it and to actually take it out, to look at it, to question it, to see where did it come from? Where am I storing it in the body? How can I release this? How can I navigate this? 
And I think it's really important to not look at yours and then look at somebody else's and say, oh, you had it worse. And you really have to understand that it's how you receive it, how you interpreted it, how you stored that, how you took that information and what you did with it based on the skills and knowledge and experience that you didn't have when it happened. And so I yeah. want people to know that it's not your fault that these things happen. And it's definitely not a competition. And the way that you experienced it is your own unique way of navigating those really tough yeah. situations. And you develop the coping strategies that are associated with that out of a state of survival. And Correct. so I really want people yeah. to take that home and understand that. Yeah, the patterns that are very well said, man, the patterns that were developed from those experiences and the interpretations of those experiences have formed who we are as adults, how we give and receive love, how we trust in relationship, our own sense of self-worth and so forth. And one thing that I want to really drill here is that the trauma competitor within us needs to die because it is yeah. a, an insidious pattern and an insidious way of actually, quote unquote, not doing our inner work. And what I mean by that is this oh, that person's trauma is way bigger than mine. That gives us an excuse to say, mine wasn't that bad, I don't really need to go into it or I really don't need to address it and deal with it. Or I've had so much trauma, my trauma is the worst compared to everyone else's, it's too difficult to touch. So either right. way, you back yourself up in a corner where you don't have to address whether it's through safe feeling ways or through, through rewriting stories. There are processes, there are various stages to dealing with trauma. But we avoid those stages by being in competition with trauma. So we want to avoid that at all costs. In doing the steps of trying to navigate our own personal experiences, a lot of us find shadow work. You'll notice that on TikTok recently, that shadow work journal went around. It became really popular. All these videos being made about it. What is shadow work? What does it look like? And if somebody's looking to just start into it, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, so shadow work is a deeper exploration of self. It's an exploration of the unknown parts of our psyche, of our emotional being, of our makeup, of our personality, of our character. It's the stuff that we can't see that really fuels and drives so much of how we be in the world and what we do. So you may say, how do I look for something I don't know? <laughs> I don't know exists or where do I look for it? Within the chasms of my own psyche, which is can be... It's, it can be profound and deep and very vast and overwhelming. Yeah, and that's I the can't even admit that. that I have feelings right now, let alone get to that place. <laughs> yeah, let alone get to protective patterns and defense strategies right. that were, were forged at three years old and live deep within the crevices of your psyche and neurobiology. How do you excavate that? And so with support, we're relational beings. That, that's the immediate answer. Like You need support. You need people that see you, that trust you, that you trust, I should say, as well. It's re reciprocity there, of course. Trust, respect, revere, that feels safe for you that don't judge you that are non-judgmental and compassionate and empathetic and understanding and then you need to feel safe enough in your body what does that look like well, you need to learn how to regulate your nervous system so you need to know how to be able to put yourself in a calm state let me give you a very simple example i'm a real advocate of cold exposure therapy right i just love it i like getting my cold plunge every morning for a few minutes i'm not trying to be a hero i've got an interesting side note i have an interesting like a, a histamine effect if it gets quote unquote, too cold. Anything below 38, it just starts to, I start like for 10 minutes later, I'm itching like a madman. Like I've just smoked really? crack or something. It's ridiculous. And it's just my genetics, right? Because I've done my genetic right. testing. So I know I have a histamine effect. So I'm trying to get that so I can go a little bit colder because I do enjoy the cold. But around that 38, 39 for me, it, the, the itching's minimal and it's nice. 
cold enough. I mean, I'm not out there being a hero. I'd have to 33. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I enjoy having it at that. My, my point is I'm not doing it because I'm trying to prove something. I'm doing it because I thoroughly enjoy it. Love-hate relationship, actually, which is a good thing. Right. But I enjoy the benefits of it. So, for example, I'm going to use that as, a, as an example with respect to what I was sharing. Yeah. Nervous system regulation. So when I'm going into the cold plunge, I need to be able to regulate my nervous system. I'm placing myself in a position that is uncomfortable, but not uncomfortable to the point where I have no mastery over my body. So within seconds, it's really interesting, within seconds, I can regulate my nervous system. That Now I'm giving myself an example of regulating my nervous system. I have capacity to do that. That's a tick, right? I remember for I got unwell for two or three weeks, so I didn't get in the, in the cold. And when I got in, first time, it took me like 40 seconds to regulate my breath. It's interesting, okay. but I was still able to do it. And so that's a really good example. That's a win, right? Like we've got to celebrate small wins and strive for small wins. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So that's an example of that. And so we have to learn to regulate our nervous systems when we're doing shadow work because it can get dicey. We're going into the unknown, into the mysterious, into the feminine womb. Right? We're going into the, un the uncertainty of our own lives. We're unpacking patterns that's going to affect our ego self. It's going to impact how we see ourselves. The ego loves familiarity, doesn't want to change. It wants to stay safe in what's familiar. So you're purposely, deliberately moving and venturing into the unfamiliar. That's risky. So you've got to be able to learn how to regulate your body and your nervous system first before you even start exploring. That can be super helpful. Then doing that in a supportive way, you just, you're stacking more of a, a movement towards sincere and positive exploration. I'm not saying it's going to be devoid of any difficulty or challenge. It will be. There will be challenge there when you explore the unknown for most people, but at least it's going to be tolerable. And so one thing that we do is when we're exploring the unknown within ourselves, we move, we expand what's called our window of tolerance. And once we get to the edge of our window of tolerance, where it feels really, it's too scary to leap off, what we're going to do is we're going to come back and regulate. And just that process and exposure of, oh, I'm a little bit dysregulated, but now I can regulate myself, gives us confidence because we're exposing ourselves, but not overly exposing ourselves to the point where we're getting thrown in the deep end. That can work in some instances for some people, but it's not recommended. What's more recommended is titration, nice and slow, and pendulation in and out, and build that muscle of in and out. Dysregulated a little bit, regulated dysregulated a little more more regulated and that's the exploration of the unknown in the shadow and and one more thing i'll say to that is and this is what carl jung says basically is that the shadow is all of our experiences all of our memories all of our thoughts all of the stuff that we absorb through our nervous systems and through our senses and through our experiences and relationships and all those things and they've been stuffed in a backpack and we hold on to all of it and if any of it's really intense to the point where we now have a fear response, we're going to become, we're going to develop a pattern of hypervigilance. And so that heavy thing that we experienced is going to keep popping up every time something familiar that reminds us of that largely unconsciously, it's not in our conscious awareness, and I'll give you an example of that in a minute, comes up, we respond or rather we react in the way that we need to fight or flight, we become defensive, we become aggressive, whatever the coping strategy is. So for example, let's say you were beaten by your father really bad one time and you remember he was wearing this red shirt 30 years later you may see someone with a very similar red shirt and start feeling exactly what you felt or weren't able to feel back when you were six years old and you have no idea why 
that's an example of that shadow, that knapsack that's packed with all the shadows. Yeah, it's so interesting because you don't even remember it, but it mm -hmm. pops up for you. And you might not even know that's necessarily the trigger that caused it. You just recognize if you're a casual observer and you're looking in your environment that, yeah, you know what? Actually, I saw that shirt and that reminded me of this situation. Why? And that's really a place, obviously do this with a therapist or some, a coach or somebody that you trust, but an opportunity to really start diving into that and figure out what it is that I'm feeling in that moment. When I'm working with clients, I talk a lot about field notes. As a police officer, we use field notes as a means of looking at what's happening in our environment, what we're experiencing, the time, the date, the weather, the people that we're talking to, the conversation that we're having, the words that are being used. And it's a really great opportunity to get a whole picture of the situation in the moment while you're in it. And that's why I love that you brought up cold plunging, because it's actually a practice of presence, of putting yourself in the moment of really beginning to register what you're experiencing right now. Because so many of us, it's so easy to just grab our phone, we dissociate, we go from, from this place to that place, and we get into this place of escapism. And we're not really confronting the things that are happening inside of us, or that we don't even really know that are happening inside of us. The other thing with the cold plunge for you guys, I, that's a really great place to be. However, they do say 52 degrees. That's what Tony Robbins does. So you can be at 52 yeah. if you want, start slow and, and work yeah. your way into it. The other thing you talked about was ego. And I think a lot of people get this confused. How would you explain what ego is and what that means to us and how can we begin to navigate it or at least experience it? Yeah, the most simple way that I speak to ego, firstly, I, I speak to it in, um, in neutral terms more than anything else. And it's, it's a layer of identity that we hold within ourselves that helps us function in the world, right? And so that layer of identity, it, it, it has layers. But So this layer has layers, by the way. So it's also very surface level or prima facie, superficial, and I don't, there's, again, no negative connotation when I say that. In other words, I, right now I have a beard, I have black hair, I've got a blue um, tank top on, I've got tattoos. Like this is, These are aspects of my being that are recognizable to others. The pitch of my voice, the tone of my voice, the things that I do in the world. Like These are how we identify in the world essentially is our ego. They include our mannerisms, our character, our personality, our thoughts, our belief systems, our values, our patterns, our unconscious and conscious aspects of self. It's very deep. The ego is very deep. I heard Matt Kahn once say that the ego is the soul in its infancy. It's the expression of the soul in its infancy. So to me, from that place, the ego is very tethered to the material world. It's very tethered to this physical plane. And anything that disrupts the equilibrium of what is familiar to the ego feels like a threat and therefore feels unsafe. And therefore, that's where those patterns that are locked into our bodies and locked into our, our neural grooves and the way that we function, they come out to protect us um, from the thing that is about to potentially change us. And we don't want change, right? Although, again, you may say explicitly, consciously, I want change. I want to change this in my life. I want to change that. But your ego self implicitly doesn't necessarily want to change because at least in where you're at, what's happening, you may be in right. poverty, you, you may not be where you want to be, but you're okay. You're okay. And, and, and right. that's- I, what, I so can anticipate this, tomorrow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you're familiar with it. And yeah. so that sometimes becomes our sticking point as humans and really expanding our own sense of potential. That's so huge. It, I want you guys to lock in on that for a second because 
complacency. We often say complacency kills. We get stuck in these situations, in these moments, in these places in time, and we stay there. You might be 30 years old, but emotionally you're 20 or you're still 15 because you've been living the same day, the same life over and over again for the past 10, 15, 20 years out of a place of complacency, of needing to know what's going to happen tomorrow. At least this isn't the greatest situation. It's not the best. I don't necessarily want to be here, but it's comfortable and I know what to expect tomorrow. And so we really want to get to this place eventually of being okay in the uncertainty. Mm, Yeah, it's resilience. Yeah, but in order to be okay... In order to be okay with that uncertainty, you have to learn to be okay with yourself. And that's why my work focuses so much on self-love. And I know you do the same. So I was hoping you could give us your definition of self-love and how can we cultivate that? Yeah, for sure, man. And before I do, I may just build on what you shared, which I think was really powerful just a moment ago. And and, and I, I mentioned toughness and resilience, but I want to give some more context to that. And I think I want to add a, if I was to call, make this a triad, it would be equanimity, toughness and resilience yeah very specific to moving through challenges and difficulty we, we need the equanimity we need the 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 calm in the face of chaos to really assess the situation and to not be reactive and be in our defensive postures and, and protective patterns and that comes from doing our inner work blanket statement doing our inner work and that comes with time and then we need the toughness the mental fortitude and toughness and physical and emotional and spiritual to be able to move through the challenge. And then the resilience is the recovery. Like how do we recover from challenge? Because to me, challenge and difficulty is an innate part of life, just joy and beauty and gratitude and all those things we have access to, right? And and when we're expanding our sense of self, and this will feed into the self-love question in a moment, when we're expanding our sense of self, we're honoring our potential. And that's part of, for me, part of the definition of self-love. Like it's this commitment to expansion. It's this commitment to growth. I think it's one of the prime directives that we have in this life. I think it's radical self-honesty. Can we get really transparent and real with who we are? Can we take radical responsibility and ownership of our shit and what we bring into the world and what we project and how we... No, I now, can't do that. Generally not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the tricky piece, right? Like it's, yeah. it's such a humbling thing to our ego and we just don't. We don't. It's very... That shame is so big and so part of my own inner work has been learning to deal with my shame, like purposely taking myself to shame so that I can be and learn to be with my shame in deeper ways and show up more honestly in relationship and in my life. And that then really feeds into self-love and the expansion of that. Like I have a duty, as every single human does here, in my opinion, my, my perspective, to grow. To be It's not about being better than you were yesterday. It's a very simplistic way to put it, and there's some truth to that. But it's to be a greater version of you and continue to grow into the versions of you that are calling you forward, that are pulling you, inspiring you to be greater than what you were, really. That doesn't mean that you are, that if you don't want to be greater than what you were, sorry, let me go back. That doesn't mean that if you're wanting to be greater than who you were yesterday, that you're not grateful for who you are right now. Not at all. Both in my mind can live and exist at the same time. It's how we do that and how we pursue that that really matters. But that to me is the, is part of the foundations of self-love and to know that we're more than what we think we are. That's part of self-love as well. We're more than what we believe we are. And I don't just mean that, I don't just purely mean that, 
oh, the material is less than the immaterial and the material, the physical plane and the physical body is less than the ethereal or spiritual self. Not at all. I think, again, both. Like We need this physical plane, this physical animation to have the, the, the anima and animus within us, the spirituality within us, our soulful expressions come forward. But again, part of that self-love journey is honoring that. I think it's it, part of self-love is really working with our trauma and honoring the past that we've had so that we are no longer dictated by the past and we can live into the present and into the future. Part of that is a big part of that is doing our inner work, is facing our demons and our pain. That's part of the shadow. Right. Are there different types of shame? I think there's layers to shame. In my yeah, in my experience, the energetic of shame is the energetic of shame. But like most things in life, it resides on a spectrum. You can let's just look at masculinity for a second. You can you, and again, it's such an arbitrary thing. Maybe I should use something that's a little more. Yeah, because we're actually going to get into that in a couple minutes. Yeah, well, this is subjective. It can be a subjective thing. So if we look at something that's more quantitative, right? Like you can look at okay, let's say being hot and cold, right? Firstly, it's, it's somewhat at to, up to a certain point, it's relative, but you look at hot and there's not just, oh, once it reaches a certain point, that's hot. Well, beyond that, it's still hot, right? So there's degrees of heat and there's degrees of cold. And similarly with shame, there's intensity that you experience in shame that's really, really intense. And then there's less intense afflictions of shame. It's still part of the same energetic though. It's still part of, if we look at guilt and shame, it's, oh, I feel guilty for the action I've taken. The, the deed, the thing that I did, was not appropriate to the social context and I have a certain feeling aka sadness that I hurt that person through my actions I will apologize for that and that whole scenario now has informed me through the guilt that I've felt for the action that I've taken that I don't want to I don't want to do that thing again shame on the other hand is quite different I'll give you an extreme example same sort of situation but the shame internalizes I'm a piece of shit I can't believe I did that oh, I'm a fucking idiot. I hate myself. Everyone's going to hate me. Oh man, I can't believe this right now. And you've internalized it. And then that stems from low self-worth, from a sense of self that is fractured and still traumatized. And so in other words, it's unresolved, largely unconscious trauma there that's feeding into that low sense of self-worth, right? And again, stories and belief systems and voices in your head, and it could be cognitive impairment. There's a whole bunch of things. I'm not saying that people that experience shame have cognitive impairment. No. I'm saying they can be in extreme situations, right? But shame, again, is designed, designed maybe socially designed, if you like, or adapted and adopted over time to help us not repeat those things again. The, the issue with shame is that we make it, we internalize it in its extreme form. We internalize it so deeply that it can paralyze us. And then we retract from the world completely. And that extreme action is not healthy either. So I hope that answers your question around levels of shame, but there's more no, to it. It, it does because there's also this epigenetic component that we have carried shame. And so these are the mm. things that came from our, our family through generations, but not only that, the most immediate generation being your parents. And so you tend to carry this with you through the words and the language that they used and the way that you operated in that household and the things that you experienced. And you get the words of how you explain the environment in which you live. 
money doesn't grow on trees. So now you have this feeling about money that we're not allowed to have that because that's not who we are. That's not where we came from. That's for other people. And then you carry that with you throughout your lifetime and you end up living a life that's in alignment with exactly that experience. And it's not until you start challenging those things and doing the inner work and doing the shadow work that these things really start to come up for you. And you realize that, you know what, I don't even know why I've been feeling this way about this particular thing in this experience. Where is this coming from? I feel it right here. It's in the center of me and I've always had it, but I don't know why. And then you begin to get into the somatics and breath work and you release it and you're like, holy shit, it was never mine to begin with. Yeah. And yeah, you get to release that. But the problem is you have that carried shame and then your shame on top of that. So you're it's the double whammy. You're trying to navigate this stuff and move through it and ultimately release it. And I know you're big on breath work. So can you tell us the benefits and how breath work has changed your life? Yeah. Once again, just to add on to the wisdom that you just shared, the complexities of shame, man, I just want to really emphasize this point that, and this is the importance of, of working with people that you trust, respect and revere and that have substance in, in their capacity to hold people's emotions and expressions and then help them navigate that it is the, the complexity of shame. And you touched on this around holding other people's shame. Uh, we So many parents raise children and they're still traumatized themselves as adults. Yeah. They haven't really healed their trauma. And so they inadvertently pass that down to children. They, their codependence is forged. Unhealthy attachment styles are forged. Um, children being so self-referential at a young age, up to the age of seven, eight, nine, ten. In other words, everything's about them. They make it mean everything's about them. And so if they're yeah. having negative or very adverse childhood experience, ACEs, they're internalizing that. So they're developing a habit of shame right up off the bat. And if their parents haven't healed that within themselves, they're taking on their parents' shame because right. ultimately it's my fault that mum's like this. Or it's my fault that mum and dad are like this. And then they're taking that on. They see how they treat themselves and each other and they that amplifies within themselves. So there's so much complexity. Yeah. And I don't I, I say that not to overwhelm people because guess what? It's really possible to move through all of it. And I yeah. fucking mean that. I'm not exaggerating. It really is as complex as it can be. So breath work for me, man, it literally saved my life. Literally. I was at a stage in my life number of years ago and then I was familiar with breath work, but not the, we'll, we'll label it the holotropic kind or the spiritual or psycho-spiritual explore, explorative kind, psycho-emotional slash psycho-spiritual explorative breath work. And this friend of mine said, and I was, man, I was in deep in suicidal ideation. I never wanted to kill myself, but I was really as a, as what appeared back then to me as a logical step to right. end the pain that I was in and my perception that I was painful for others was suicide. And I think many of us have had those thoughts before in life. And I was at that place in my life, like really dark and really deep. And I was just exploring a bunch of shit within myself that felt like it was too much but I'm very persistent. I'm very stubborn and I'm very, can be very consistent. And so that, that attribute, I held on to that attribute during this process as well as I had in my like athletic career and anything, what well, we wouldn't call it a career, but my athletic endeavors, <laughs> amateur, but high performing because I like to push, right. but amateur, nevertheless, I really held on to that. And he said, Hey, there's this lady visiting from um, Sweden. She's really, she's a masterful breathwork practitioner. She can really help. And I said, Sure, man. Like I hadn't given up at that point. Like I was still willing to try anything and I was just holding 
both of these realities. Yeah, I think I can get through this, but maybe I can't. And I, I think I've got to end this shit. What was your key ruminating thought in that moment? I've experienced this and yeah. I would love to hear what your ruminating thought yeah, was. Yeah, a, a number of ruminations. Like I'm not good enough. Uh, yeah. I hate my life. I'm not lovable. I'm not useful. Yeah, I'm not useful. Oh, that big one for me. The utility piece is big for men, man. Huge. Big. So it's ingrained yeah. within us from an evolutionary perspective, in my opinion. And if Jack Donovan speaks- my life, why am I yeah. here? Yeah. 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 Jack Donovan speaks a lot to utility as well. He's a great author, I think. He's a solid human solid man he's i think he's written four books and a number of different papers i've read all of his books and some of his papers he's brilliant man but he, he speaks he just speaks a lot to utility and so i just felt i wasn't useful for anyone i was i'd lived this life where i was so useful to people and i just felt so depressed and so down and i just hated life i, I really struggled to one thing i kept as a staple was my training my exercise going to the beach i right. forced myself to get into the ocean and I love the ocean, but I just, I, the joy of life was sucked out of me. So I had to force my, this is where the persistence came in. Like I had to be disciplined and just be in habit. And that those practices kept me afloat, you know, as I was exploring some really deep shadows and honestly, man, going to places within myself that I don't think any human being should go to, but it was just my journey. That was just, and I'm grateful I came out of it. I, I thought I'd end up in a mental asylum or commit suicide or get through it. I knew, I knew those were three of my options. And so I was willing to roll the dice because I didn't want to keep living the way I was living. And I don't say that in a cavalier way, like I've just I'll roll the dice in my life. Like I just, I, I didn't give myself any other choice. Like I had to traverse this path of self-discovery. And I knew that those were the three options that are where I'd end up. So it's yeah. leaving is not an option. So now I have to figure yeah. this out, whatever Correct. that looks like. Correct. Yeah. 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 So I went and saw this practitioner, man, and she just opened up my heart or she facilitated a space for me to do that. And man, the stuff that came out, the emotions, the cathartic release, the screaming, the crying, the pain, just leaving my body and just moving through my body. And I knew there was a lot more there. And it wasn't like I hadn't done any emotional release work prior to that. It was right. like, that was not like it was unfamiliar to me, but this was just another level that I hadn't accessed before. And it just opened me up, man. And I remember finishing that session in a daze and completely confused as to what the fuck just happened. Because it was like being on a plant medicine journey. I literally collapsed duality. And I just remember, I don't even, I was like, my eyes were half open, half closed. I was just scribbling and writing. And I journaled, I don't know, four or five pages of stuff that just came out me. And that was a turning point for me. But it was a turning point because it gave me a genuine boost of intelligent hope. But it was also deeper down the well. But it was fine. It was what it was what was needed for me. Yeah. What has your plant medicine experience been like? The one word that I would describe my my and I've been on that journey for like probably ten plus years, eleven years, is confirmatory. That's the word that I would use to describe my no, plant that, medicine. That, that's interesting. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm pretty deliberate with. I never, I guess I never really, outside of alcohol, I never really took drugs in a social setting to have quote unquote fun with. Not that I don't have fun when I'm on plant medicine. I absolutely do. Right. Um, not all the time, depends on the journey. But right, it's, right. it's not like I would pop ecstasy or take cocaine and go out and hit the clubs. And I, and I just never did any of that. Alcohol, yes. I had a issue with alcohol in my younger years, but Drugs, no. I just never went down that path. And so with sacrament and plant medicine, I have a very, what I feel to be a very sacred connection in terms of I'm very deliberate with how I do it, when I do it, who I do it with, why I'm doing it, how am I integrating it into my life? 
And I've tried an array of different sacrament and ceremonies and gone into different ceremonies. And, and it's a big part of my life, but it, it, and it's a constant part of my life, but it, and a regular part of my life, but it's not like I do it every week or even every month, not at all. So again, like I'm just very deliberate with it. And there's space that I allow for integration. And I just, it's just part of my own personal practice and it's important to me, but I also have very, for lack of a better term, very strong perspectives on plant medicine used in modern Western culture and the way it's used. And I think, I don't have to tell you what I think, but I just have very firm view, I can if you want, but very firm views on that. Sure. Yeah. No. And so everybody I talk to that has done some sort of plant medicine or that's as far as I'll go with it, but they have their own experience and they're very intentional with where, who, and when, and how. And I think that's a really good idea to do exactly that. And if you guys want to learn more about that, Sean Ryan, episode 97, he just released uh, the other day on that. So you can check that out and get some more information on plant medicine and what that might mean for you, should you choose to go down that path. Uh, you have another uh, social media handle, and I found this quote and I liked it, and I would love for you to expand on this a little bit. What does global governance starts with self-governance mean to you? Yeah, I'm glad that you you found that quote from one of my companies, Asraya. Yeah, I if I go back to what I shared earlier around relationships and the importance of being in relationship and bringing a fuller version, a more mature and healthier version of ourselves in relationship, the same really applies to the way we govern ourselves as a state, as a city, as a, as a township. Oh, it's, I keep going back as a family unit, as a township, as a city, right. as a state, as a country, as a global economy. If our leaders, the people that we're meant to elect into governance and leadership are holding trauma within themselves, they're not self-governing. They're actually being governed by the unconscious past. And so our objective as humans, at least in part, in my opinion, is to make the unknown known so that we have greater mastery of ourselves. It's not this need to control. It's this desire to have greater mastery and influence in healthy ways that expand humanity. And I, I get that's a very subjective term. What I think expands right. humanity may be very different to you or to Bill Gates, as an example. And so I, I think that self-governance and being responsible for ourselves is going to lead to better global governance and decisions that are being made on the behalf of billions of people. And this really transitions nicely into coaching for men because that self-mastery is such an important component that's often missing in a lot of the coaching programs that I find online. You look at these things and everybody has their different version of what masculinity should be packaged as, right? We. For some, it's doing plant medicine. You got a man bun. You're out in the middle of the woods screaming your head off. You're sweating. You're puking. You're doing all of these things. It's a horrible experience, but it's the best experience you've ever had. And then you've got the other people that are like, no, lions, not sheep. And we're moving in that direction. And I'm really curious, just when we look at self-mastery, what does that actually mean? What does it look like? And which version of masculinity is correct? Or can they all be true at the same time? Oh. Big questions, brother. Big yeah. questions. It's interesting you know, that there's a term that we use sometimes, traditional masculinity. Who's traditional masculinity? I, I think I know what we, we know what that generally means, but there's right. an arbitrary subjective nature to that. And masculinity, I don't necessarily think is completely objective. 
nor is it completely subjective. So I, I, I think it's somewhere there in between. Let me give you an example. And I'll come back to the self-mastery piece, which I think is actually maybe a more difficult question to, to explore, but at the same time, not necessarily. I and mean, I'll come back to that in a second. So with masculinity and femininity, masculinity doesn't exist without femininity and vice versa. To me, they're two birds, two wings of the same bird, two sides of the same coin. Other terms for masculine, feminine, energetics or expression, and basically we're just creating a duality in the human expression because duality can create contrast and contrast can create richness in learning and growth. And I link our human endeavors to growth, right? And so we want to grow. We want to learn something new, rediscover something about ourselves that was lost, heal something within us, et cetera. So there's active passive energies, there's do and be energies, there's go and flow energies, there's yin and yang energies. And so these represent the dualistic nature of expression in the world, right? And so as human beings, as sentient human beings, we hold both of these energetics. In my experience, and I also would posit from an evolutionary perspective, most males would be more masculine in their expression, in their demeanor. Right, And there's biological, hormonological, genetic, and cultural reasons for that. And the same is true for, for women. Not always the case. And neither is right or wrong either, by the way. Right. I think that information is really helpful to understand. So there's that. The self-mastery piece, why I say it's a little more difficult, it's a more complex question, is because... I, I do believe that is quite subjective because we carry different interests from one to another. Right. However, there's also frameworks that we can apply that can be useful, that can be the masculine container for our open exploration of self-mastery. And so in self-mastery, starting with learning something, a new skill, whether it be for men particularly with our hands is really good and really useful. But learning a new skill, whether it's bowling or playing darts or building something, maybe building miniature ships that go into the glass bottles, whatever it is, or you're learning a new skill, or you're learning to play poker as an example, that leads to a greater sense of self-mastery, specifically if you can go deep on one subject and really become affluent in that subject where all of a sudden the thing that you're doing, maybe it's playing chess, it's less conscious then it is unconscious. So most of what you're doing is you're just, it's unconscious. You're seeing things and you're knowing it's, you're simplifying what you're seeing because you've gone so deep into what, into the skill, the practice. So you don't need to calculate ex extrinsically or externally, like uh, consciously all the different moves. You're actually able to calculate, not even calculate, you're able to see the end result without the calculation because you've got mastery in that. You've had so much exposure. So part of self-mastery for me is exposure it's not just the sort of the 10,000 hour rule. Right. Yeah, th th there's definitely, I think, validity to that, but it's less about the hours and the reps, if you like. And it's more about how you've reflected on that experience, what you've learned from it, how you integrate it into your body. That's the important part. You can do something habitually, but if you're not interested in it and you're not invested in it, you're not fully present to it, it's not going to be as beneficial. You're not going to maximize the mastery, if you like. So to me, they're attributing factors to, to self-mastery. I love that. The most important piece of all of that, um, you said in the very beginning for me, it just really resonated. And it's rediscovering something about ourselves. 
It's mm. understanding that in the very beginning, throughout your youth, there was something that you were good at, something that you were naturally interested in, something that you were capable of doing that maybe others weren't. And at some point through just living our lives and experiencing the world and the environment in which we live, that got diminished, that flame got blown out and you lost that piece of yourself. And you'll find yourself in your 30s, 40s or 50s and you'll feel like this inner yearning, this idea that or this knowing that you're capable of more. You've got more in the tank. You haven't fully discovered what you're capable of or what you can do in this world and you never quite tapped into it because for whatever reason you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not capable, you can't do this. It's not for you. And you believed that up until this point. And we like to call this a midlife crisis, but it's not it's an awakening and you're really, you're coming into a knowing of who you really are, what you're capable of. And if you're willing to dive into that just a little bit and dive into that self-discovery, you'll be able to open up a whole new world to yourself of abilities and skills that yes, you have to go back and learn some of the things that you didn't pick up in the beginning because it was never modeled to you. You never experienced it. It was never shown to you. So you only know what you know. And that's really one of the biggest pieces is understanding that you don't know what you don't know. And when you can get to that point, now you're thinking about thinking and you can get to this place of, okay, what don't I know? And what's the next mm. step? How, how can I learn that? How can I hone those skills? Mm. Yeah, I love that, man. It reminds me of Dan Sullivan speaks to self-mastery in a, in a really beautiful way. He co-authored a book, 10X is Better Than 2X. I can't remember the other mm-hmm. author's name, but they speak to this, right? And they speak to self-mastery being your own unique blueprint because genetically you are one of a kind. And if we understand that our physiology impacts our psychology and and our social function as well and vice versa, like it's this circular motion that we experience in life, then we are unique. And if we can look at not at the things that we do, like we can have expertise at something and be really excellent, zone of excellence and be really good at something, but what is uniquely your mastery? And that is the essence of who you are and the accumulation of what you've been and who you are today and how you bring that in service to the world, how you bring that in service to yourself, how you express that in the world. I think that that curiosity and that exploration of self-mastery, I think, is very powerful. I'm actually in that process right now as as I'm personally moving through this re-identifying of self in the world. I'm going through this process now and it's really empowering. So who is it that you're becoming now? What's next for you? I'm not sure, man. That's where I'm at. You're yeah. just in the exploration. Yeah. I've got an I've got an idea. It it's really not completely different to what I'm quote unquote doing right now, but the interior self is shifting. And so I'm letting a lot of shit die, a lot of old patterns. That's really where I'm at right now. I'm letting a lot of old patterns die. An example of that is my reactivity fueled by hypervigilance and misinterpretation of information coming at me. And a more specific example is, you know, when I'm in communication with my wife, I'll sometimes interpret what she's saying as demeaning or as insulting. And instead of getting curious and pausing and asking questions and clarifying, is that what she's meaning? Is there something underneath that? Like really getting curious, I get reactive. I'll get short with her. I'll, I'll become abrasive. And what I'm noticing is that particularly since I've become a father nearly two years ago, these insecurities that I once worked with and I'm very familiar with are rising to the surface again in different ways. And so I'm I'm noticing this 
insecurity and fragility in my own self-identity and even my own masculinity, which I don't like to fucking admit and own in any capacity, but it's true. That's where I'm at. And so I'm, I'm letting a lot of shit die within me, but before it dies, I, I need to be in communion with it. Otherwise it's not really dying. If I'm not, if I'm not familiar with it and I'm not seeing it and being in, in communion, touching it, dancing with it, being with it, playing with it, letting it express. Otherwise it just goes dormant and comes back again. So I'm really just giving myself an opportunity to explore many of these patterns that have kept me in the expression that I've been up to this point. And there are some of those patterns that I just don't align with anymore. And it's time for them to transmute into something else. I love it, man. That awareness of self is so important. And that's the work. That's why we do what we do. And the fact that you're willing to share those pieces of yourself with your audience, with my audience, and to put that out there, it says a lot about your character and who you are as a person and how you show up not only here with us today, but also with your clients. And it's what's made you so successful in all the things that you're doing. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate all the content that you put out. I even, in preparing for this, I listened to a bunch of podcasts that you were on to include uh, your wife's podcast. You guys had an episode and listened to that. And I love the story that she was telling of how she used to walk maybe on the beach, but she had headphones in and she would talk to herself, actually talk to her partner that she didn't know yet. And I was hoping you could share that story uh, with our audience. Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful story that she, she was one New Year's Eve where she just really surrendered and she said to God, clearly my picker isn't exactly where it needs to be when it comes to relationship. I'm not going to be attached to how I need it to look and I'm just handing it over to you. And I thought that was really beautiful and what she would start to do is just envision that and walk with it and be with it and talk with it and love with it and just surrender to it. And that was like, part of like her she process. was calling you in, right? Just pulling yeah, that in, yeah. manifesting. Yeah. And... yeah, for sure. No, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. I can't yeah. let you go without having a conversation about vulnerability because yeah, yeah. again, it's it's one of those conversations that really gets everybody up in their feelings. They don't know what to say about it, really what to think about it. They have their expression of what they think vulnerability is. And then there's Renee Brown and, and the definition that she hands out as well. So walk us through what that looks like for men and vulnerability. Yeah, I think Renee Brown's definition of vulnerability is very powerful. And of course, we should, not should, but We'll have an opportunity to look that up and really connect to that. And I personally resonate with it. For me, man, in context of vulnerability and masculinity, what we don't want is vulnerability for the sake of vulnerability. I call it vertical vulnerability. And what I mean by that is that not only in our physical posture are we lengthened in our spine, are we confident in our physical spot posture, but there's some stages to the vulnerability. And vulnerability is just being honest and truthful with yourself and with those in your life that you need to be truthful and honest with. And instead of layering a, re- a, de- a defensive structure or a defensive posture or layering excuses or um, shame or fear over the thing that you really want to express, you just express the thing that you really want to express. Now, again, there's versions and layers of vulnerability because we can be unhealthily vulnerable where we're just vomiting our shit onto other people. Expecting that's called them emotional dumping. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, We want them to fix us and fix it. And or we want to play the victim. So we want them to feel sorry for us. And so you've got to be vertically vulnerable. That means that I'm not insinuating that you can't express raw, 
but you need spaces, safe spaces with agreements in place. Right. These are more practical tools now, practical scenarios with agreements in place where you can come raw and unprocessed. But first port of call for me, especially for men, is go within. Always go within. Yep. Always go within. Always in an absolute way. Even if it's for a fucking split second. Then go to your trusted peers. Go to your group. Go to the people you have agreements with where you can be seen and witnessed and held in, in your messiness and all of that shit. Because your partner in this context may not be ready for what you have. You may, you may have to be more processed before you bring it to them. Depends on the relationship that you have with your partner. So you have to have agreements in your own partnership as well. And so being vulnerable for the sake of being vulnerable, I don't think is necessarily healthy. It depends where you are as an individual as well. If you need to practice vulnerability, then you need to find circles where you can just be vulnerable and vomit your right. vulnerability. Because it's better that you go, because the pendulum will often swing. So I'm fully retracted. I'm not vulnerable. I'm very untruthful with myself and others. And then if you go on that path, sometimes people just go, Bleh. cool, go blah, but find the places and spaces where you can do that. And then the pendulum will swing and eventually come into homeostasis where you can be healthier with your vulnerability. So I think for men, that's really important. Yeah. What about vulnerability with our partner and what that looks like? The thing for me is I think it's important for people to recognize that you have to understand the other person's emotional capacity to receive whatever it is that you're about to give to them. And so that mm. takes a little bit of self-awareness on your part. And again, that ability to zoom, zoom out, take an inventory of what is this person capable of receiving? If I give them this experience that I've had and they've got their own stuff, they're going through some difficult things, they're not prepared to take this heavy thing that you're about to hand over to them. They're just going to drop it because they don't know what to do with it. It was never modeled. It was never experienced. They don't know what vulnerability actually looks like or feels like. And so it's one of those things you have to work up to this with your partner over long periods of time to get to that place of trust and safety. And you can look at the Agreed. relationship they had with their father is a really just quick example. If it wasn't a good one, then you know you're going to have to take your time. Yeah, very much agreed, man, with everything you just shared. I, I love that. Stephanos, how can people find you and work with you directly? Yeah, thanks for asking, man. Coachwithsteph.com to apply to work with me. Stephanosafandos.com is my main website. And you can just find me on social media at Stephanosafandos. Awesome. And you have a breathwork I do. event coming yeah. up? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a 26. So it's women. It's breathwork for the feminine. It's generally a women-only event. It's for the feminine. My wife and I run that. And and these days, it's more me just because of our little one and so forth. But once we get into a different routine, it'll be Christine will be back. But um, we do that every month. It's live in person and virtual, live streamed and recorded. And it's an amazing opportunity to come together. It's a three-hour somatic experience. It's not just breath work. There's live coaching. There's integration. There's embodiment practices. And then twice a year, we open it up to men. March 27th is the co-ed experience. And then tickets will go on sale for that. And it's a pay-what-you-can model as well, man. Like the virtual is pay-what-you-can. It's I really want to make this accessible to the world. And so far, it's great. Like we, we will probably hit a thousand, over a thousand women this month in, for the month of February and from over 50 countries around the world. So it's really, it's a beautiful practice. Yeah, it's a beautiful practice. I'm really happy with just the, 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 the people that are coming are just so committed to themselves. It's so inspiring, man. It's so beautiful. But yeah, March 27th is the one for everyone and that will all be up on my website as well. Awesome. I can't wait for yeah. that. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank, thank you. you so much, brother. Yeah, I appreciate you very much, man. Thank you.